0: Good afternoon. This is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I must apologise, or sorry, we must apologise, I'll speak for you, Michael, for disappearing for three weeks and not having the show go up. I received many very polite queries about where it was, some that were not polite, but I could feel the passion and love that was in them, and a few asking if Michael had died which <laughs> oh, I didn't mention to you, Michael, up to this point, because I didn't want to worry you. But um, you seem fine. You seem with us. I seem alive. You should kind of, I would say, be a bit concerned that people feel your grasp of mortality is that tenuous that if you just don't appear for a couple of weeks, you're in the ground.
1: I'd like to think that there would have been some kind of formal announcement, or A, a Facebook post to that effect. Something to the effect of, from next week, Gary will be joined by John Murphy, as Michael has died.
0: Yeah, and to really mark the uh, the occasion, the EBI will send out a tweet for the first time in, I think, about two years.
1: <laughs> yeah, the intern, the intern would send out the tweet, just in case.
0: Yeah, something like, need director rapidly for account sign-off. <laughs> but again, we must apologise. Events, my dear boy, happened, and we were... Uh, we were taken away to deal with them for a while. They are now dealt with. Everything seems to be going well. I can't go into too much detail about them now, but if they work, you'll all know. That sounded slightly more ominous than I had intended, but together we can do great and terrible things. Do you have a less ominous version of that, Michael?
1: I'm just struggling to remember where that quote is from. You shall do great things. Great. Oh, it's Harry Potter. It is indeed.
0: I've never read the books, but I was familiar with that quote. Anyway... I understand it must have been a confusing time to for the listeners to have been left alone while many, many things happened in the news without our guidance and wisdom uh, to guide you to the appropriate answer. But I have come back with good news, Michael. Yeah. We have managed to find something capable of unifying people about the Palestinian and uh, Israeli conflict or Palestinian Hamas or whatever way you want to phrase it. It's not really important. And this relates to Simon Harris. Oh, yes. Obviously, we have a conflict. Two sides deeply opposed. A long history of bloodshed and suffering on all sides. Supporters globally who are very tied into it for many, many reasons, ranging from geopolitical interest to religious interest to what have you. But, Michael, I think all sides can stand and look in awe at the demonstration of political loyalty that Simon Harris gave this week. I mean... We've said many unkind things, I think, about Simon Harris, Michael. Um,
1: yeah, that's fair.
0: Totally without principle, I think, it was up there. A man made entirely of ambition and shadow, just in the shape of a man. Yeah, um, I like that. But I think, Michael, what this week has shown us is that Simon Harris is actually a man of deep loyalty and integrity to his party. He is as deeply committed to his what he says politically, as he is to let's say keeping cabinet confidentiality.
1: That do you ever worry, Gary? That sometime you're going to go to the sarcasm well, and you're going to have taken so many buckets of it out on a, something like this that you go there and find it dry. Because at this, I mean, we are really I mean, you I wouldn't say you're laying it on with a trowel at this stage. You're laying it on with a shovel. But uh, yes, he, he has demonstrated a, a sense of loyalty and commitment to his party and to his party colleagues, which is, i go so far as to say heroic. Uh,
0: as an aside, Michael, I it, that is a legitimate problem. I will occasionally be so sarcastic that even I don't know what point I'm trying to make. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, it's a tricky one.
0: It is. But Simon Harris comes out and he says, Michael, yeah, that... He does the general spiel about Israel has the right to defend itself after the Hamas attack. But then, Michael, he says they've gone too far, that they are now engaged in a war on children and that they are blinded by their own rage. He says, Michael, you cannot build peace on the mass graves of children. A powerful political statement. So I was, of course, very interested to see the voting records for Sinn Féin's recent Dahl vote on putting uh, the behaviour of Israel forward to the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Now, some people have said that this is unnecessary, Michael, as technically the ICC was already on the ground and this is within its existing uh, remit and operations.
1: Sorry, just as a... Is, it not a is, is Israel a signatory to the ICC?
0: No, no, God no, no.
1: Okay. But still,
0: <laughs> the, the people, Michael, who tell you that international law is real... Uh, says that they are bound as a normative principle to it, which is uh, one of those great old lines that will last exactly until you try and arrest an American. supporters of the motion said it was a way to send a message about the conduct of Israel, Michael. An important message if you believed, for instance, that this was a war on children. Yes. But Simon Harris managed to swallow his indignity, indignity, Michael, at what he clearly believes to be the targeted killing of children. The mass targeted children.
1: Even his indignation.
0: Even his indignation, yes. <laughs> okay.
1: I'm speaking quicker <laughs> than I'm thinking, so it's
0: all just kind of jumbling together.
1: Oh, just a blur. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he managed, he managed to surmount that and go for the motion or go against the motion, because his party was against the motion, and in doing so, Michael, display an admirable loyalty to his own party over what he appears to believe is, is mass murder.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? On one hand, he accuses Israel of being engaged in a war, which is actually a war on children. Engaged in a process, in fact, of mass murder, of children. But when somebody says, well, you know, if that's kind of like a war crime. If not, in fact, a very like a war crime indeed. So let's report them to the ICC. And no, no, we won't do that. No, we won't do Well,
0: it. I think what the problem here is, I think the subtext, Michael, I think the subtext has been misunderstood. When he said you cannot build peace on the mass graves of children, people took the subtext to be, and I think that's a bad thing. As in, it's a bad thing that there would be mass graves of children, not that you can't build peace on it. Whereas I think the subtext could more accurately have been summed up with, and you cannot build peace on the mass graves of children, so fuck them.
1: (laughs) I I, I, I have no response to that. I'm just struggling here to stop making the observation that this is the man who's, you know, building on the mass graves of children is also the man who spearheaded the introduction of abortion into Ireland. But that's just my own personal bias and prejudice there.
0: I thought a comment of that nature, Michael, or a joke on that would be beneath us as a show.
1: There you go. You were wrong, Gary.
0: I was desperately trying to avoid the situation we had a couple of weeks ago, where eagle-eared listeners may have noticed that when I started talking about the president, we had had to go in and, you know, make a couple of, uh, shall we say, small uh, post-recording cuts. Because it was decided by the editors of GRIPT that what I had said was so deeply unfair... And pointed that it should not be broadcast.
1: Oh, I didn't think it was unfair.
0: Uh, oh, it was all true. Everyone accepted it was all true.
1: In a, in another sense, deeply offensive to the listeners, shall we say? But absolutely true. But then again, you know, the truth is sometimes offensive.
0: The comment I got from one of the other <laughs> editors was, "I don't think that you're wrong, but I just can't support those words being said about any person." <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah, that's reasonable. That's, not a re- that's a reasonable position.
0: But in another example, Michael, on the same topic of political consistency, Leo Varadkar. Oh, yeah, yeah, Leo Varadkar also had thoughts on the conflict, but Leo's thoughts could be brought to a wider sphere. Leo was saying that we should, you know, we should support a two-state solution, which is never going to happen because neither side wants it, but... You know, we keep trying to just. I
1: don't know if that's fair. I think that Israel has, on a number of occasions, offered two-state solutions, tried to achieve a two-state solution. Whether or not, right now, it is possible to envisage a two-state solution is a whole other issue.
0: Yes, and there were points in the past where you might have been able to get some of the Palestinian groups on board. But you will note, Michael, the use of the present tense in what I'm saying.
1: All I'm I'm saying is, I don't know. And I, it may be, you may be right. I don't know that Israel is opposed in principle to a two-state solution. I don't know that. It may, it may be. Israelis may right now be. But I don't know that to be true. I think it, we can say with comfort that Hamas is opposed to a two-state solution. Because it would be very hard to have two states if everybody's going to be free from the river to the sea.
0: He comes out. One of the points he made, he starts talking about the need for the EU and getting an active approach... But he starts talking about international trade and the sorts of people that you should be willing to trade for. Yeah. And he says, we need to say to the Israelis that we're not willing to continue to trade with them in the way we do if they are not willing to be serious about a two-state solution and about allowing the Palestinians the right to have the state they need and deserve. Now, I have no issue with Leo saying that as a matter of policy. If that is the government's policy, that's the government's policy. If that's what people want, that's perfectly fine. We don't tend to, shall we t- say, take a similar view on some of our other trading partners like China, a country who has been accused quite heavily in the past number of years of actively undertaking an act of genocide against the Uyghur population. And I don't mean that in the way people like to throw around genocide. As a general, they are doing bad things to that group But I mean in a legal sense. Yes. As in meeting all of the formal criteria to be considered an act of genocide. Saudi Arabia, for instance, Michael, another option. They have some, shall we say, unpleasant views in areas. But I think China is the real big one. Both as a trading partner and in its violation of human rights. And I just wonder if Leo is going to carry that forward. You know, in the interest of political consistency, Michael. Because... Surely if human rights are important enough to change the nature of a trade deal, they should be important enough to change the nature of all trade deals. Unless some dead people are worth more than others, Michael, and some people would say that's racist.
1: Gary, it's almost like you're on the cusp of, but not willing to go sufficiently far to actually say the words, that Leo might be being hypocritical here. And I know that you and I have fairly low value on the idea that accusing a politician of hypocrisy is, in fact, accusing them of anything really at all.
0: Well, I would never accuse anyone of hypocrisy, Michael, because hypocrisy is, after all, the worst part of it.
1: (laughs) That's a Norm Macdonald reference there for the listeners who haven't heard that before. But, uh, yeah, it's a hypocrisy word, but yeah, it, it I think, Was it Rochefoucault foucault or somebody like that said that hypocrisy is the compliment that vice plays to virtue? Listen, I think the more interesting thing here would be the fact that he says, and I don't know if this was a deliberate thing, I doubt it was deliberate, but he said that we will continue to trade them with them as we do now. Because I think that the reality was if we did decide we were going to have some kind of proper boycott of Israeli trade or goods, and it wasn't, say just to like a tariffs agreement, we're going to punch them with tariffs. We're going to actually boycott. I bet you we would end up boycotting Israeli oranges and potatoes. But you know those little gadgets that they make for valves that you need to, for heart transplants or something like that, or some interesting new pharma technology that helps people with the strange viral conditions that they saves their lives. And the only people in the world that make them are the Israelis, or that kind of stuff, you know, that very high-end pharma medical tech that israelis are very good at my suspicion is gary we would find a way to around putting an embargo on that
0: that sounds like the sort of technology michael that might be involved in certain precursor elements of some of the pharmaceuticals that ireland is involved in the creation of or the medical devices were involved in the creation of and i say i'm not sure the multinationals would be happy if we cut off their supply between behind human rights embargoes
1: I I think, I, think, I think that's a fair thing to say. You, uh, it's impossible to know and speculate, but you do start to wonder after a certain point, point in time. Both of us have been talking to people outside of Ireland uh, and becoming, I think, both of us aware of a sense about how much of an outlier Ireland has become on this particular issue, particularly the language which has been used by the parties in government not just the sort of the, the hardliners and the radicals on the left but all the parties here with one or two of notable independent exceptions and you start to wonder because we have seen moments in the last little while where you know this what we 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 you we might call cancel culture is no longer going only in one direction and yeah, you can't completely discount the fact that if we were to continue down the, the policy line, and shall we say the rhetorical line that we seem to be engaged in now, that some large American multinationals might reach a point where they say, you know, we're no longer that committed to staying in this particular jurisdiction. For I mean, there may be practical reasons because of that, because, as you say, supply chains, it's involving stuff with the Israelis. The Israelis may have a position and all that. But... <laughs> It's incredible. I suppose it's just, I'm just saying, it's incredibly childish. This this is so performative, Gary, isn't it? Like, Harris's speech was just performance. Because if he had actually, truly, genuinely, in his heart, believed what he was saying, there was no way he could not have voted against reporting Israel to the ICC. I, I, I don't see how he could have done that. And so much of this is perform- Like, you know, there was, there was a comment about... Uh, I think some was the People for Prophet or the Shinners or somebody was saying that they're talking about the the protests in Dublin and that they were going to bring the country to a standstill until there was peace and a ceasefire. And the notion that Ireland coming to a standstill was going to affect Israeli policy on how they were going to prosecute the war is just so fucking childish and banal. It beggars belief. There you go. I just I, I think that there's a childishness here that we may end up wondering why the hell did we do all of that when none of it was actually going to make a difference. All it was was just local brand grandstanding and and theatricals, but that then turned out to actually have a a consequence in the real world.
0: We are very fond of just saying things uh, politically when oftentimes it's just better to say nothing. On the the topic of uh, changing the nature of trade with Israel or whoever else on human rights grounds, I'm actually perfectly happy if we do that, as long as it's applied consistently. It will never be applied or consistently because of you know the wonderful realist nature of all of these sorts of things. If you have enough power, you can do what you want. And no one is going to cut trade with you. No one is going to cut trade with China if it decides it just wants to shoot millions of people Apart from maybe America. and I mean, they'll try their best, but they won't get it across the line for most of the world. So I find all of this, I think you're right, it's largely performative. But more than that, it's just a display of a balance of power. It is a area where we feel we cannot be harmed by getting involved, so we will get involved. And on that ground, it's it's fairly cowardly.
1: Whether or not you take some kind of sort of hardline realist position on this and say, it's just about power anyway, so it'll never happen, I, I don't know. Maybe you may be right. I don't know. But I just say as, as like as a as a practical exercise in ethical behaviour. I don't know how you do it. If we're going to start looking at every trading party partner that we have, either as individual individually as an, a, a sovereign nation or as part of the wider EU group, what are we? Where are our red lines going to fall? What are we going to decide? Because we know from our own experience in our own little country. That moral red lines change, within a generation, things go from being absolutely morally unacceptable to being morally necessary, and in fact, going from being terrible sins to being human rights. Where are we going? To, where are we going to line? Are we going to? Is it going to be? It's the practice of slavery. Are we going to say that any country that has effectively the practice of slavery, we're not going to do, deal with them? Is it only going to be at a cult? Is it going to be at a government level that the government is in some sense involved with in them, or is it going to be at is it going to be supporting terrorist organizations in other countries? Is it going to be practices about the rights of women or the rights of gay people? or what? Is, it, is it going to be countries that practice capital punishment? I mean, there's an example. I could perfectly well imagine the EU getting say, We we think capital punishment is absolutely outrageous thing. It's very, very bad, very immoral. We're not going to trade with anybody that practices capital punishment. And there goes China and the United States.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if you can pick the line, there's the practical difficulties of it. I mean, you brought up slavery. That would seem like quite an easy thing to fix, but then you try and put your lines in, and suddenly things will blur quite a lot as suppliers try and shift things around. They try and rename things. They try and run them in different means so they don't trigger your red lines. Which is not to say that, in general it is useless to do this sort of thing. I think there is a moral argument that it should be done and probably a practical argument that it should be done given who some of the heaviest uh, abusers of human rights are. I just think it's very, very difficult a lot of the time to do these things um, in many trades. But there's I mean, look, people love calling for things, things that seem good on the face of it, like a ceasefire, Michael. Ceasefire is obviously a good thing because the violence stops. so a lot of people are calling for it. Yes. I just haven't quite heard a good explanation of what it actually achieves other than stopping the killing in an immediate sense. It doesn't actually seem to solve any of the problems that led to the killing or would lead to the resumption of the killing or give any side anything that they would actually want, it just seems to be this sort of, I feel bad about this, so please stop killing each other. Which is lovely, but I'm not sure productive.
1: No, but I can imagine a reasonable person saying, well, you know what? Stopping killing people right now isn't a bad thing to, ho- to, to, to try and advocate for. I, I, I don't know if I would say that it's a actually a practical thing to desire. Uh, I don't know that, that it would necessarily produce any, even short-term or medium-term positive outcomes. But I can understand the emotion, the, the, I can understand the place the, from where it comes. That I just, I, and this is just a small, well, kind of a small point it, that I, I find a bit annoying is, we see all these figures, hor- horrendous figures for the numbers of people who are being killed in Gaza, Right. As a result of the Israeli attacks and the invasion, shall we say, of Gaza, and these numbers are just stated: we so X number of civilians, X number of children, so on and so forth, have been killed, uh, and the, the source is the health ministry. It's quite like the health, as if they were co- as if they were giving a, a statistic quoted from the HSE in Ireland or the NHS in England, rather than somebody who is a mouthpiece for Hamas. And it just seems to be bizarre that you should just throw that number out and not even contextualize it or put in some, in the manner of, uh, of Twitter, uh, like a reader's comment for some kind of context on how much or how little faith you should have in those numbers. And the BBC, like the BBC are doing this, RT, the, the serious newspapers, just quoting the figures from the Gaza Health Ministry are saying.
0: It kind of makes me miss the old school war correspondence. The, you know, the people who go in on the ground. Are, they're not so much a dying breed now as mostly a dead breed. You still, you still see people doing it and kicking around, but the, it seems like the golden age of it is dead. Where you had, you'd have multiple of them in a place and they were quite, they would end up being quite familiar with it. And one of the reasons I miss them is because they were all kind of bastards. Yeah. Like they were just all, you get the sense that they might be fun to be around, but they were perfectly happy to step over a child's corpse to record a piece. And you kind of have to be to just spend your life going from war zone to war zone, or else you end up in the position the Fisk ended up in, where you will repeat. Anything you were told, as long as you were told it by the right people. Yeah. But anyway, we did not. Uh, we did not really want to talk about the conflict at all. Merely the political response to it, because I don't think it's a useful thing to talk about, frankly, at all.
1: Well, it, I don't know. Useful to talk about? Maybe talking is useful always. I don't know, but I, uh, I don't think either of us have, in the last week or so, come up with a solution to the problems in Israel. So let's move on.
0: I've got a couple of solutions, people just won't like them.
1: I don't doubt that nobody will like them.
0: You know, people said it's a complicated situation, but Michael, after an analysis of it, I can give you some real simple solutions that will solve that issue.
1: Yeah, let's do that off air.
0: <laughs> that was phrased in that manner purely to make you uncomfortable with it. No, really. You wanted to touch on the wind energy subsidies, Michael.
1: Oh, just very briefly, um... There was a rather interesting article, uh, which uh, I don't know if you could put the link up there, but uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, it's just been announced the UK government is going to increase offshore wind subsidies by 66%. And this decision comes because increasingly it's becoming difficult for uh, developers to get long term investment and to get debt deals structured. Because when it turns out, I mean, we've been doing the wind thing for quite a while and it hasn't turned quite into the panacea that the everybody had hoped it was. Now, I did notice that uh, it was quite a lot of positive comments about this from people representing Danish companies. Uh, Denmark is, as you know, Gary, the world's largest. Producer of wind energy turbines, uh, well, wind technology generally, and it, not as not the not as strong as it once was. Um, it, the the commissioner, of the EU was who was responsible for this. Why it was, for, at least one of them was Danish, and they they like to push. It's good business. The problem, and we've talked about this before, is wind energy is not new. There's nothing deeply weird about the idea that we should use wind energy. Once upon a time, lots of Europe had lots and lots of windmills. Ireland used to have lots and lots of windmills. There's only one left, I think, in the country. Well, actual old-fashioned windmills left working down somewhere in South Wexford. The problem with governments is that governments pick winners. And that's a problem for innovation. Because what happens is when companies, particularly in this case, they'll... they get into the business of long-term investment and long-term development, but they will only put their money, they will put their money in, in, in that technology where the government has already picked a winner. And that creates a problem for developing alternatives. Now, it hopefully we have seen changes in that and there may be moves towards branching out into looking at different ways of approaching this problem. But... I. The figures off the top of my head, I can't remember, but you've seen them as well, Gary. And the the, the, the the subsidies, for example, that the German government have put into alternative sources of renewable sources of energy, producing levels of electricity prices almost as bad as Ireland's, and massive developments of wind energy off the in the in the North Sea, and it just hasn't produced the the outcomes that we had hoped for. And yet, here we are in this country, and we are still buying into this fantasy notion that we have a technology. I mean, you know, the 2030, whole 2030 debate here. You have read, you read out before in different podcasts, quotes from the Minister for Environment talking about, you know, the, 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 the investment opportunities, the business opportunities, the industrial opportunities for developing these technologies. It's going to be fantastic. But all of it was on the basis of technologies that we hadn't yet discovered. And it seems to me to be an incredibly dangerous way of developing an industrial energy strategy based on that we are going to work out how to do this any minute now. And it would seem to me the fact that they're having to increase subsidies by 66%, Is an indication, Gary, we still haven't cracked it? Or am I being unkind?
0: Well, in general, the um, movement towards green energy has, to be fair to green energy and the developments in it, I think what has happened is there has been a global decision to move towards it at a time when the technology is neither mature enough nor developing rapidly enough to actually take the demands that are being placed upon it. So, what we have seen there is issues with energy supply, price increases, and the trending towards systemic issues with the energy supply, not just in Ireland, but across large amounts of Europe. Now, to date, they have been relatively dealable with. To I date. think. I know in Ireland, we have gotten several times lucky that things have not gone worse. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of times where a bad winter would not have uh, would not have been what we wanted and we didn't get it. But I think we are seeing an increasing reliance on something that is not holding up to the degree we thought. Battery technology particularly was you know, the great hope of a lot of the Green Party policies. And while there have been advancements there, they're still not where they need them to be. I think part of this is why we're seeing growing support for nuclear energy across a lot of Europe, I think there has been a realisation politically that regardless of how seriously you want to take climate change, you can focus on the actual policy side of that and the impact it's going to have, rather than a debate about climate change, which I think is where we've had it. It's people shouting to each other or at each other about how serious climate change is going to be, rather than actually sitting down and going, okay, what are the impacts of these policies Yes, we say they'll counter climate change, but what are they going to do to the culture? What are they going to do to the economy? And not to, not to. I, I think I'm, I'm on the verge of ranting, so to pull myself back, I would just make the point that I've said several times before that when you look at most of the revolutions in human history, all of them, I think, are actually fundamentally about energy, about the gathering, the usage, and the spread of energy. Yes. This is the first time in wide or widespread human history where I think we've seen entire societies with large amounts of people advocating for the reduction in the supply of energy, the increase in prices. And I think that could have disastrous consequences just for the general standard of living of people. And you see some of that, the Green Party talking about things like degrowth Yes, And and moving against the idea of of growth. Uh, And I think it's legitimately probably quite dangerous. Um, I think it could see Europe beggared, driven into a peripheral region entirely because we've decided we're going to be a peripheral region. And it hasn't gotten there yet, but the groundwork seems to be, we're clearly going in that direction.
1: I I don't doubt that because I have a great, deal of faith in the ingenuity of uh, human beings that, for example, with the question of batteries, that we will eventually crack the problem of energy storage, which is the big problem which wind energy faces. It's the fact that you can produce lots and lots of it, but very often you produce it at times when nobody wants to use it and then you, you just dissipate it and it, you can't keep it for, for those periods where you actually need it. I, I think we will find uh, a technology which will help with the storage of energy and there are now new solutions which are new technologies, new, new science which have been approached away from the traditional battery model which looks like it has reached a certain point beyond uh, which it can't go but there are indeed other new batteries even in the traditional ones which are much more efficient. If we look at solar energy, I mean the, the, the cost and the, efficient, the cost of production and the efficiency of solar cells has massively improved the last couple of decades I mean the technologies are getting better but the the point I suppose which we've made God knows many times before is until they are we still have to accept that we need a parallel stable system of uh, energy production our economy our culture our way of life is based on the existence of plentiful and relatively cheap energy production and you if we choose to move away from that, then we are consigning ourselves to the periphery, economically and politically, to the periphery of, of the global discourse. Because there were a number of maps, actually, again, not not connected with this, but published this week by a number group, showing the global distribution of sort uh, of greenhouse gases. And you look at the and you look at the section of the greenhouse gases which are being produced, say by China and by India, and then on and indeed the United States. And then you look at the production coming from Europe. The idea that what we're going to do is going to have any kind of significant effect on anthropogenic climate change is, frankly, just it's it's silly. And the idea that that, what we're actually going to do is provide moral leadership, which other people have. China is not going to sacrifice growth. India is not going to sacrifice growth in order to mitigate the effects of anthropogenic climate change and production through the production of uh, of carbon or, or methane or other greenhouse gases. It's just not going to happen.
0: What we would, or what I would expect in the case of China and more rapidly in India, depending on how things go, is that as the population becomes richer, demands on the political system will increase. And you're already starting to see in China an increased focus on um, clean supply of energy and particularly the movement towards clean air in the yes. same way you uh. saw in London, Um uh, many, many years ago at this stage, it's going through the same process. So you would expect improvements to happen there. One, uh, yes, obviously there's a baseload issue, uh, which is to date largely unsolved and was really the problem with a lot of the German stuff. One of the other issues I, I have here is that subsidies naturally distort th- the market. And there are many issues with that. I, I suppose. But I can see why certain or people support them in certain instances. But one of the things I think it is worth mentioning is that subsidies also distort the development of technology and, and how companies will invest. So, for instance, there's massive subsidies available for certain types of renewable power for certain types of development because various entities have decided that those are the types of power that should be researched and should be used. And the concern there is that you could have a situation where companies feel that other areas are actually more, uh, have a greater potential and that they should go into them, but those are not subsidized. So the commercial interest is basically tilted in a way it would not be naturally. And so what you could actually see is we have a situation where technology that would be more helpful is not developed because effectively the, the playing field has been so badly distorted. And that I don't think is something that's, that's talked about all that often either. I think there is just a sort of, well, yes, you give the money and they build it and that's how it goes. And that's without going into the fact that many of these companies are simply absolutely unviable.
1: No, but that, without that, that's massive exactly, subsidies. That, that's exactly my point. My point was that when governments get in the business of picking winners in the area of technologies, you just you completely distort the development of new technologies because it's going to be perfectly reasonable and rational for any energy company that's in this business to farm the subsidy rather than pursue the technology that they think might actually be the solution because they don't know if that's the solution. They don't know it may fail, it may be an absolute disaster, but they know where the subsidies are. It's much like when in before you had single farm payments, and you've, the, the, at different times, in different places, the EU would subsidize production and it would make decisions, sometimes odd local decisions regarding what kinds of things they would subsidize and what they wouldn't. And it would inevitably, that situation is people would chase the subsidies rather than sit back and say, well, actually, what does the market want and what can I produce to meet what the market wants that I can actually make money out of? Once you get into that people will make a perfectly reasonable and rational choice which is farm the subsidy go for the subsidy but that means you get stuck in one particular technological rut another choice and also then you have the you have in economic terms you get crowding out effects when all the money is going in one direction and' coming from one place you also crowd out private you, you, you will uh, private investment uh, in different kinds of technology it's just it's it feels like a really good thing to do it feels like you're doing a really positive thing, and you announced, it's a bit like government subsidizing research in universities. We're going to spend X amount of money on research in universities, and that's going to be great. We're going to have two percent of our GDP is going to go on research and R and D, and people say, "Well, that's a great thing because we're in, you know research is the future. And we're going to develop things." But whether or not in reality, when you compare a country, it actually makes the kind of difference you think it will be is is at the very least highly debatable. So you have it, but it. Feels like the right thing to do, but whether or not in actual economic terms and technological terms it is the right thing to do, I think it's very much open to question.
0: And on that, I think uplifting and heartwarming note, Michael, I think we should uh, break for the week. We will be back next week, and hopefully every week until the end of the year, at least, provided you can stay alive, Michael.
1: It's a cheerful thought. Anyway, yes, yeah, so we we'll keep going to the crack of doom, Gary. But until next weekend, have a good one. Enjoy.
0: All the best.